the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. Okay, so that is where we are this morning. It's good to see you. We actually, we're going to continue on in Matthew. We're today on Matthew 14. Now, Matthew 14, you know, we've been going like gangbusters. There are, um, there are so many uh, accounts and little snippets of things that have happened before in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the sending out of the Twelve, some of the miracles and that sort of thing. But today we only have three stories. So we should be able to get this pretty well. Um, and each of these stories uh, have an important point. And uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing those with you this morning. So the first uh, account that we have out of Matthew 14 is about John the Baptist again. And so we're going to start reading at Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. So this is uh, the first part of this in verse 1 and 2. We see that we're talking about Herod the Tetrarch. Now Herod the Tetrarch, excuse me, uh, Herod the Tetrarch is the second ruler after Herod the Great. If you remember, Herod the Great was ruling when Jesus was born. Then he died and he gave uh, his ruling to one of his sons. It was Herod uh, Archelaus. And then Herod Archelaus stepped down and then Herod Antipas, or this Herod here, took over ruling uh, where, uh, where Jesus was. And uh, he was not as great a powerful a ruler as Herod the Great was. I think he ruled a smaller amount of this region as opposed to Herod who ruled a larger amount of this region. Um, but this whole entire Herod family was still subservient to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire kind of kept these kings in place as long as they brought in taxes and kept the peace and you know just did a few things uh, because that's the way the Roman Empire spread. They spread by kind of conquering areas and then turning around and saying, okay, you can do a self-rule but here are the new rules. I mean, it's kind of like what's going on with this coronavirus, right? The federal government's like, okay, we're going to leave you alone, states, but you got to do these few things. And as long as you do these things, you're in good shape and, you know, you can continue doing this. But I think if a state were to, like, completely ignore the federal government or completely go off in left field and not do things that are necessary 
and it impacts the rest of the United States of America, it would not surprise me. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but it wouldn't surprise me that the federal government would then step in and say, okay, wait a minute, you're not doing this well. We're going to step in and take over for a while, and then we're going to let you. I mean, we do it a lot more. <coughs> we do it a lot more peaceably than they did back 2,000 years ago, that's for sure. So that's who Herod was, right? And then we get this account um, of Herod who's having a party. Now, Herod uh, had a brother, Philip, and he divorced his wife and he married Philip's wife. And John the Baptist, this, is, this was against right, the Jewish law. If you look at the Jewish law, right, you're supposed to have one wife. You're not supposed to have relationships with your brother's wife. I mean, these are the things that don't happen. Um, now, there were some Old Testament things where if the brother died, uh, then you were supposed to take over the brother's wife to keep, to keep the empire of the tribe going. But this is far removed from that. This is now um, the, the Jewish time at the period of Jesus. And there were some very strict rules as to how these relationships were to happen. This was completely against what he was supposed to do, he being Herod. He should not have married his, brother and his brother's wife. This was just wrong. And so John starts preaching against Herod, saying, don't do this. And what does Herod do? Uh, he throws John into prison. Um, probably John would remain in prison for the rest of his life. But in prison, he cannot continue to preach against Herod, right? Uh, then Herod has this party. Uh, Herod's wife's daughter is there. She starts dancing. Uh, Herod is probably, you know, had too much to drink. He's, you know, he's excited about this dancing. He's just, oh, it's the most wonderful thing ever. Whatever you want in the kingdom, I will give it to you. You know, that kind of one thing. You know, showboatmanship is basically what it is. I, you know, I've got all this power. Tell me what it is that you want and I will do it for you. Stupid thing to say. Stupid thing to say. Because now what's he going to do? I mean, if she says, I want a million dollars of gold or something like that, you know, he's got all these people around. What he's going to do? That's not what she asked for. She asked for, for her mother, who did not like that Herod was pre or that John the Baptist was preaching against her. She said, "I want, I want Herod's head on a platter." So Herod, you know, he he already boasted that he was going to do this, you know, whatever she wanted, um, and so basically he has no choice. The guests are there. He put an oath out there. He said, "I will do whatever you want," and so she takes him up on that. She says, "I want John the Baptist head on a platter." Now, he was fearful about doing this because he didn't know what would happen uh, because Herod, uh, you know, was still subservient to Rome, but he also was trying to keep the peace with the people. And if he were to destroy or kill Herod, kill John the Baptist, that could cause an uprising in some circles. And then he'd have to quelch the uprising and he'd have to exert more power and force. And, you know, anytime one of these uprising happens, there's always a risk that you could lose, you know, a lot of people or lose respect, lose your, lose your vassal state from Rome. I mean, there's, there's, you just don't want to do that. So Herod weighs the risks of what's going to be the impact if I kill John the Baptist, the political calculation, right? Versus what if I leave him in prison and, uh, you know, lose face with all my guests and particularly with this young lady who is dancing in front of him. So he weighs the risks and he decides he's going to kill John the Baptist. And so he has the, you know, the, the guards go kill John the Baptist and bring his head out on a platter. And every time I hear stories like this in the Old Testament, I mean, I just, or, or you know, in this, in this New Testament period, it just amazes me at how 
callous uh, and how the world today is so, I believe that the world today is so different from what it was like 2000 years ago. But you know, the fact is it's not really. There are probably rulers around the world today that would have no second thoughts, no reservations to going and killing a political foe at all. This stuff happens all the time because when you are in power, the most important thing that you can have is power. And you will do anything to maintain that power if you have it, uh, and including killing your political enemies. Here in the United States, we don't see this very much. But my friends, it happens very, very frequently across the world. As a matter of fact, the fact that we live in the United States at a peaceful time, that we have this pandemic, and we don't have rioting in the streets. We don't have killing in the streets. We have people that are, that are kind of cautious, but still following federal guidelines and state guidelines, and they're not killing each other. Uh, it happens so few times in the history of the world because by far, the most, uh, most of the world's history and most of the places around the world Death and destruction by people in power is just commonplace. And it, it does happen around the world today. Um, we don't, we kind of turn the other eye and we turn a blind eye to it, but it actually does happen. You know, the, the Tutsis and the, who, who, the, 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 the tribes that killed each other in Africa, I'm drawing a blank as to who they were, but what do they kill? Like a million or 10 million people? I mean, one tribe killed another tribe. Um, it, it happens, it happens, and it, it happens with a lot of frequency. I mean, this whole idea about political power, this is what Jesus came to stop, right? He's like, my kingdom is of another world. I'm not going to fall into the trap of power in this world because power corrupts. Um, it is amazing to me that, uh, that people in power will use it so much to remain in power. And even here in the United States, I, I see this a lot, um, that people, it, it, there's, who has the power today, right? The, the rich, the powerful, uh, the, the socially connected, the people uh, uh, today would be on the internet, but it might be Hollywood, but it's people who, who are just, they have so much power. Some of them have power that, that they don't use very well, but, but people who are in power, um, they love their power. They adore their power. They, they will do anything to remain in power. They will do anything to remain on the popular list of all the you know, gossip columns and stuff like that. People in power love power. And they will do anything to remain in power. Um, there's a guy uh, who studied this. His name is Pareto, right? And what he found out was that what ha he was studying power structures around the world. Like, what is a good system of power uh, that kind of maintains the peace? So this is what we've found throughout the, world, the history of the world, okay? Is that power attracts, money and wealth and power attract money and wealth and power. I mean, that's just, that's how a king comes to be a king, right? He starts to attract power and money and wealth, and then he attracts more and more and more, and pretty soon he's the most powerful person, and now he's the king. I mean, it's the same thing with the Queen of England today, right? I mean, have you ever, 
Has anybody ever told you how much the royal family in England actually owns? I mean, I think, I don't, they own, they're, they're, they're a dynasty, right? And a long-lived dynasty, the, the Tudor dynasty. And so everything in downtown London, all of the, all of the, what they're now museums, but St. Paul's Cathedral museums and houses and, and all of these things are owned by the royal family. And it is, it was so much wealth, the crown jewels, right? And all these properties and all this was so much wealth that you couldn't almost even calculate how much wealth it was. I think people have tried uh, to look and see how much wealth, but you, you, I mean, how do you put a price on things that are priceless, right? I mean, you just, I think they've done some studies and they've said, you know, this, this is the, the Tudor dynasty, Queen Elizabeth, I mean, is a lot of money because money attracts money, right? Um, and at some point, the people in England decided, hey, we don't, we don't want all this wealth anymore. We don't want it concentrated in the king and queen. So they started taxing it, right, as a people. And so Queen Elizabeth had to make a deal with the, you know, the parliament to say, okay, here's the deal. I will turn over all these properties back to England so they'll be public properties to get rid of the tax, right? But you guys have to maintain it in perpetuity. Uh, and you have to give us, you know, the royal family, a stipend or a salary so that we can keep the appearances of the royal family for the stability of, the, of England. And so that's the way it's been for, for a number of years, right? Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a deal with the devil because, uh, you know, at some point that, that arrangement may, may not be financially, fiscally possible anymore. It depends on how many people in the royal family and how much money that costs to maintain all these properties. And it could be such a burden that the parliament say, you know, we're done with this deal. We don't want to do this anymore. You get one property, you know, Buckingham Palace. Um, and the reason why I say this is because, uh, so this guy Pareto, he looked at all these different ways of, of you know, uh, of looking at the way that power consolidates. And uh, what happens is that Power is always, a tr power attracts wealth and power and pretty soon it becomes so powerful that you end up with people like Herod that basically live like a king, you know, off, the, off of the resources of all the people in the kingdom, you overtaxes them and then pretty soon you have the people in the kingdom, they're going to have a revolution, you know, they're going to have an uprising. Um, they don't like the fact that they work and work and work and all the wealth ends up in the hands of very, very few people. And so you get a revolution. And this happens over and over and over again in history. Um, you have a revolution, kind of so it cleans the, the field, right? Uh, and then, you know, some people are smart and they begin to get power. And it, you know, they begin to, the power builds up in the, the small and the few over time. And then you get another revolution. This guy Pareto, he's like, well, what is the best form that, you know, that stops this. You know, what, what is the best form of government? Is it a king? Is it a benevolent monarchy? Is it an oligarchy where you have a family or a small group of people? Is it communism? Is it socialism? Is it a democratic republic or all this? And what he found out is that over time, uh, almost every form of government will at some point, all the wealth will be at the top. Uh, and, um, and it's prime for revolution. Now we've never seen in the United States a revolution because we have three branches of government and the three branches of government fight each other. I mean, not necessarily the judicial, they're like a kind of supposed to be a neutral third branch, right? But you have uh, the legislative and the Senate 
and the, and the judicial. But what we see in the United States today is that these political parties fight each other tooth and nail for power, for just one branch of government. And, um, you know, we look at we look at how much the Republicans right now, the Republicans, the Democrats fight each other. We don't like it and we hate it uh, and we get upset with it. Um, but here's but here's the alternative. The alternative is revolution or the re or the alternative is a powerful monarch who just willy nilly goes and kills people who are the political dissidents. So uh, it. <laughs> You may think it's horrible to have, you know, the, the infighting that we have now today in the United States, but it is better than the, any other alternative because any other alternative is raw power uh, uh, and usually a military power where these people can do whatever they want. And there are places around the world where this power is flexed. Okay, so I'm grateful for the United States. I'm grateful that we do have our political um, discussions and arguments and that sort of thing. Um, because it's, it's, it's not pretty, it's sausage making, but it's better than any other form of government around the world. Um, and I'm grateful that, uh, that we have what we have because around the world, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people in power that will kill just because they want to remain in power. The great thing is, is that the kingdom of God, what Jesus came for, his kingdom is not of this earth. His kingdom has more power than any earthly power uh, and his kingdom will never end. And you and I are part of that kingdom. And truly, um, if uh, honestly, uh, he, the form of government that Jesus set up, which is love your neighbor as yourself and, and don't hold on to power, don't hold power, love other people, it actually could work as a I mean, if everybody followed it, if everybody voluntarily loved their neighbor, uh, if everybody was a follower of Jesus and in the kingdom and loved their neighbor, that would be about as close to a perfect government as you could possibly have in this world. But we are simple human beings and that will never happen. But we could try. <laughs> we could try. All right. So uh, that is a long discourse. I apologize for that. But we got to get on to the next one, which is uh, beginning verse 13. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Then Jesus heard about the beheading of John the Baptist. He, when he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Of course, to a solitary place, right? This is his cousin. I mean, if you'll remember at the very beginning of Matthew, right, um, the, that um, John the Baptist left in his mother's womb when Mary came to see Elizabeth and they were cousins, they were, they were very, very, very close family. And, um, and Jesus did not rescue John the Baptist out of prison when he, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to say, Hey, are you going to rescue me? And, and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to rescue you. I've got other things to do in the kingdom. And then he hears that Herod killed his cousin. And so he withdrew by boat to a private solitary place, but the crowds don't let him alone. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. And then as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. And just think of how 
first of all, his cousin died. He's emotionally drained. He's been healing all day. He steps off the boat. Um, and the disciples are like, send everybody away, right? We, we, we haven't done We haven't eaten all day. Um, and you haven't rested all day. But Jesus had compassion. He had compassion to the crowds. And so as tired as he was, as exhausted as he was, as emotionally overwhelmed as he was, as hungry as he was, he said, no, we're going to feed these people. And so he did that. And I just, this is a good story for me because there have been times in my life, not only as a pastor, but, you know, as a person in the, you know, in the doing, you know, volunteering for the church or volunteering for my community, there are times when it just seems so overwhelming. It, it, I just, I just don't have another ounce of energy left in me. Um, and I'm sure you have been the same way, right? Where you just don't have an ounce of energy left in you. Uh, and, and when I hear the story of this, particularly this one with Jesus, where he's like so overwhelmed and yet he has compassion. He sees the hurting needs of the people and he still goes one step further. I mean, it helps, you know, fill me when I just don't feel like I have another step further. But what does he do, right? Um, he pauses and um, he says, no, we're going to do this. And the, and the disciples are like, yeah, there's not a McDonald's open within 100 miles of here. How are we going to do this? And Jesus says, let's figure this out. So that goes on. Verse 16. Um, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And then he says, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the people. And they all ate and they were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. I mean, this is just an amazing miracle, right? Uh, probably one of the largest miracles that Jesus does. He takes the, the five fish, uh, the, the five loaves and the two fish, and he holds it up to heaven. He blesses it and feeds 5,000 men, and not including women and children. I mean, I think Jesus did some of his best work uh, when, when, there was, when there was nothing around, right? We do our best work as a church when we have to rely on the power of God, right? We want to plan. We want to make sure you know, that everything's covered. We want to make sure that we've got enough money. We've got enough resources. We've got all the, you know, we want to do these great plans to make sure that everything balances out. But I tell you, my friends, the best work that Jesus does, the best work that God does uh, is when you don't have all the resources, right? You don't know where the next meal is going to come from. You don't know where the next rent check is going to come from. When I look back at the history of our church, Christ Lutheran Vale, I can't tell you when, it, when we first started it, okay, I was, a, I was a civil engineer working in a civil engineering firm, a company. Um, we had to, you know, die by the budget, live by the budget. Cash is king, right? If you don't have cash uh, for the next payroll, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, these are the things that you live as when you are managing an engineering firm and you plan for the worst. And when, when things even start to look like they're going downhill. You start looking at how we're going to cut costs and what things are we going to buy, what things are we not going to buy. You know, you cut things out of the budget. These are things that you do. You cannot 
in a church, it's, it's a little bit of a different beast. And it took me a long time to realize how much of a different beast the church is. Because a church is an organization where Jesus is king. The church is the organization where Jesus provides resources and it's our job as a congregation to take those resources and use them to the best that we can to further the kingdom of God. And if it's a few resources or if it's a lot of resources, um, we're just trying to maximize what those resources are. And some of the best work that we've done as a church, Christ Uthan Vale Church, you know, the mission of the church of Christ is when we've taken bold steps of faith and to say, Lord, we don't know how this is going to happen. We don't know how this money is going to come in. We don't know how this project is going to finish, but we're relying on you because we know this is the next thing that you've called us to do. Uh, and there, I just look back at all the bold steps that the congregation has taken and how God has been faithful. You know, we've been, we've been together as a congregation for 15 years. We've never missed a paycheck. We've never missed a rent payment. We've never missed anything that we felt necessary, that we knew that was a requirement for us. We've never missed a single one of it in 15 years. Uh, and I think that is just a huge blessing from God. And I worry sometimes about um, what happens, you know, when we build our building and everything's comfortable and we put everything in a budget and we don't take any more big, huge leaps of faith because we don't need to. Um, and I think that's when a church starts to go on the downward trend, right? When everything's comfortable and you don't have to make any more leaps of faith. Um, the, the, God can do amazing things in the midst of his people, in the midst of his congregation. And uh, I think it's incumbent upon all of us as leaders in a congregation to continue to push, to make steps of faith, to do the work that he's called us to do. He's called us to spread his gospel, to make disciples uh, in the world around us. And that requires steps of faith and doing things that we don't feel comfortable with. And we don't know where the money's gonna come. We don't know where the resources are gonna come from. We don't know where the people are gonna come from. Um, but God calls us to do that. And so we do, we take steps of faith and we rely on him that he's gonna bless it. I've always said, and I've said this to every board when we started, that um, if you do the right thing for the right reason, if you do the right thing, if God is calling you to do something, and it is for the right reason, it's not for political gain, uh, it's not for personal gain, it's not for power, prestige, you know, it's, it's stuff, it's Jesus stuff, right? That you know in your heart that this is what God is calling you to do. If you know that that's what he's calling you to do and it's not for me, it's for the kingdom and you do the right things for the right reason, I believe that God will bless it. And I have not seen yet a time that God hasn't. Um, so um, just, just I'm so grateful for where we are at Christ Lutheran Vale because um, we, have, we have done some amazing things. God has done so many amazing things in our midst. Uh, and I know that he will continue to do those amazing things. Um, and he will provide what he needs to provide for those amazing, amazing things to happen. Here in the, in the feeding the 5,000, they had, had five loaves and two fish and God held it, you know, Jesus held it up and said, Lord bless this. And it was a miraculous thing. Um, 
These are the things that, that inspire me in our congregation. Jesus looked around, he saw what resources were available. Uh, he committed everything to God. He said, we're gonna get organized here. We're gonna see what resources we have. We're gonna divide it up. We're gonna feed the people and we're gonna rely on God to do it. And God did it. It's just an amazing story. God does the miraculous from simple things. Simple things. All right, last story. And this, unfortunately, we have a few minutes. Um, I preached on this uh, when we first started into the lockdown. I had a whole sermon series on baptism that we were in the middle of. But knowing that everybody was worried about what was going to happen, how we were going to, what was going to happen, um, I went to my favorite story. I preached on this, my favorite story in all of the New Testament. And it's this one of Peter walking on the water. Um, and so uh, there is a sermon out there, only five weeks old, that, that even talks about this and the coronavirus. You can go back and look at that if you want to, but I'll try to summarize it. This is verse 22. Immediately then Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So he's just fed the 5,000, he gets in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake. And while he dismissed the crowd, so Jesus dismisses the crowd, he's fed them, you know, both spiritually and physically, he gets the disciples. Jesus just needs some alone time by himself. That's all he needs. Um, and he needs to spend time with God. He needs to refresh his batteries. He needs to refresh his bucket. Uh, so he sends even the disciples away. And after he dismissed them, Jesus goes in the mountainside by himself to pray. And people know I love to go into Sienega Creek to pray. This is how I fill up my bucket. I spend time with God. And, um, you know, I, other people, it's different things. But for me, it's spending time in the presence of the creator of the universe that really fills up my bucket and uh, gives me power and strength for living. So uh, he went to the mountainside by himself to pray. And then later that night, he was there alone. And the boat with the disciples was already considerable distance from the land, buffeted by waves because of the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn... Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And when they'd crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. And people brought all their sick to him, and he begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who were touched it were healed. So, um, you know, the disciples are out in the boat, the winds and the waves come up, and all of a sudden they look and they see this ghost, and they're afraid, right? And what does the ghost represent? To me, the ghost represents the unknown of the future. Here we are in this coronavirus lockdown, and sure, there's a shortage of resources. There's, for some people, there's a shortage of money. But I think the biggest thing coming out of this, this whole lockdown 
is that we know that the world is going to look different. The way that we conduct meetings, the way that we, like even the way that we do things at Christ Lutheran Vale, I know we're going to change because of this. I don't know how they're going to change. I don't know, but I think people are going to demand some sort of changes because of this. And I think um, that, that we just don't know how this is all going to change in the world around us. And so many industries uh, are going to figure out different ways and new ways to do this. And uh, like, you know, the big one I can think of is education. I think education is going to change dramatically because this tool called the internet is so powerful. A lot of these teachers are able to do things. A lot of the kids are able to get their classwork done in less time, you know, and education has always been one of those large things that, it, that has a lot of power and influence. And so they don't make the change, the little changes day to day that they need to make to, to, you know, to keep that business going properly. I think the medical field is going to change. Uh, I think government's going to change. I think there's a lot of changes that are, and a lot, and people are afraid. That's the ghost. They can see out into the future and know that something's coming at them and they have no idea what it is. But what's coming at them is Jesus, right? In the boat, they see that it's Jesus and Jesus calms everything. And then Peter has this bold step, you know, and he says, Lord, let me come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, walks towards Jesus. There are times when Jesus calls us to take steps of faith. And um, I love it when Jesus calls us to take, take steps of faith. Why? Because we get to walk on the water. We get to take steps of faith and see how God comes along besides us and helps us in those moments of faith. And the, the most miraculous times that I've seen in my life are times when God said, take a bold step of faith. And I've seen how God has blessed that bold step of faith. Um, and, and I've seen the power of God through those times where we've taken bold steps of faith. And then what does Peter do? Uh, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks and sees the situation and he begins to panic and he begins to sink. So if you take a bold step of faith, you know, if... if uh, if a leader of a company takes a bold step of faith, if uh, you know, if a, a congregation takes a bold step of faith, um, if whatever, when you take bold step of faith, take the step of faith. Don't be double-minded. Don't look back. Just take it, and ask God to bless it. And uh, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. But even if you do, even if the bold step of faith falls apart. <laughs> And you realize, oh my goodness, why did we do that? Or why did this happen? Um, know this, that Jesus has you. Um, he reaches down, he pulls out Peter, and they get back in the boat and he calms the wind and the sea. I mean, when you are in the kingdom, Jesus has you. He grabs a hold of you. He never lets you go. Um, that is the greatest gift to know of anything. It, I, I don't, I don't, I still don't know how people take, lead, make leadership decisions, you know, particularly when you are leading a large group of people like a governor or, a, you know, large corporation or whatever. I mean, um, how you cannot do this without having faith, uh, I think is a hard thing. Uh, for me, my faith uh, that God is going to make everything uh, hold everything in his hands, never let me drown. It's just, it's been a blessing to me in my life as I've taken bold steps of faith. And I don't take as many as probably some of you do, uh, you know, in your jobs, but I have taken a few.
Um, but I'm, I, I can, I can take bold steps of faith because I know that Jesus has got my back. And, uh, you know, with, with Christ for me, who can be against me? Have we looked at that, uh, at the sermon yesterday? If Christ is for me, who can be against me? Well, nobody. Because Christ is for us. Because we are in his kingdom and we are his precious children. All right, so I'm going to, I think I'm going to leave it there. Um, thanks for joining me this morning. Um, as, we, as we close today, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, um, thank you for the example of feeding 5,000 and thank you for the example of Peter walking on the water. Lord, both of these stories show us that you have power. You have incredible power over this world and your power is available to us through your Holy Spirit. It's, it's available to us to help us fight the battles of life, to take bold steps of faith for you. Lord, Grant us your wisdom, grant us your peace, and grant us your power. And until we meet again, keep us in your grace.